Welcome to Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Uh, I'm Adam Taylor. Ben and Jason will not be joining us tonight. And honestly, I'm really not going to be here either, except for this introduction. Donald Wine II is here to run this special episode of Filibuster, which is going to be about race and diversity and inclusion and only about those things. Um, we have a, some really great guests coming up. Um, we have Rick the Blasian from Black and Red United. We have Josie Becker from MLSsoccer.com and we have Steph Yang from Stars and Stripes FC and the Bent Musket. Um, and they're going to speak to their experiences in MLS stadiums um, in a way that I can't because I am a cisgendered white male. Um, and there are a lot of people who look like me in the stands and that's not necessarily always true for, for Donald and Rick and Josie and Steph. And so after a certain article came out in the New York times magazine a few weeks ago, um, it was clear from both the article and the response that this is a conversation that needs to happen, um, about race and inclusion in American soccer and American soccer support. And I felt that we had a platform here at filibuster and we should use it and hand the mic over to people to speak to their experiences. And Donald graciously agreed to come on and, and run this for us. Donald, thank you for, for coming on. Oh, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, always to be on the podcast first and foremost, but uh, I'm really glad that we're doing this. It's, it's not an easy conversation at all um and it's not a quick conversation um this is something that um you know we have spoke about at length and and it's and it's good to get their perspectives of your peers but also people that you don't see every week that you don't associate with in the same circles um and i think that is what this conversation is about it's the start of what hopefully will be a conversation that you out there have with your friends about um what you see at, at, at soccer games, what you see in the soccer supporters culture and how we all have a, have a, an opportunity to, uh, shift the conversation and kind of make things change for the better to make it inclusive for everyone. Um, where everyone who shows up, um, has an opportunity to feel welcome and to be a part of this growing, um, awesome soccer support culture that we already have. Um, it's not perfect, but, um, I think this conversation will show that's not, that, that there are things to work on, but, um, it's also good to get those topics out in the air because quite frankly, they are, um, issues, even if they are some, you know, things that we haven't learned about. So, uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. And, uh, I'd appreciate it for listeners. I really encourage you to come into this with an open mind. Um, this is not a typical episode of filibuster at all, which regular listeners will have figured out by now because there's no goofing off. There's no silliness. Um, at the start, there's no alcohol in this podcast, which is very rare for an episode of filibuster. Um, but I really want this to, to stand alone. And I hope listeners come in with an open mind, however they got here, whether they're the regular listeners or they, they came to us another way. Uh, I hope you'll stick around for, for the full, I think it'll be just under an hour. Um, and, and listen to everything Donald and Rick and Josie and Steph have to say. Um, and, and if you have responses, if you have questions, criticisms, send them to filibusterpodcast at gmail.com. I promise you, we will read every single one of them. Um, even if we don't respond, we will read it and we will think about it very seriously. Um, so thank you all for listening. And with that, I'll turn it over to Donald to go into the first segment. So we are here, um, as we mentioned in the intro, to kind of give a sense of how this is not an easy conversation, right? This is something that will be uh, an ongoing conversation, but I think it's a, an appropriate way to start um, by kind of getting a sense of the culture that we have at DC United, the supporters uh, scene here, um, and how um, diversity has been kind of at the forefront and sometimes when it hasn't been. Um, and I'm here with my good friend, Rick DeBlasian. Um, he's here. Uh, he's just like I and Adam, uh, a contributor at Black and Red United. And um, we're going to just have a little discussion. How you doing, Rick? Not bad. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So, to start off, give a sense to the to the listeners kind of 
how long you've been a DC United fan, how you have been in the supporters section or supporters culture and, and kind of your involvement in your role. Uh, well, I, I, I started following the team when the league began pretty much. Um, I was in my early teenage years and uh, started going to games. Not that many at the beginning, as much as I could get uh, someone to take me. Um, but as I got older uh, and admittedly, uh, a lot of that had to do with reaching a drinking age. Um, I started to, to, to come to games more and more. Um, I fell in with the uh, Barra Brava uh, and was a pretty active member um, for a number of years. Um, had a credential at one point. Used to go to away games all the time. Um, a little bit less now that I'm, I'm uh, married and have um, a, a wife to consider. Uh, but, um, I mean, I, I obviously, for the blog, um, follow very, very closely uh, go to games when I can. So you've been in, you've been in involved with DC United or just been a fan for since the beginning, a long time. It's been 21 years, um, a lot longer than I yeah. have. Um, just, you know, for the fact that I've only been here nine years. Um, how is the, you know, and, and now you say your involvement is a little bit less for, for life reasons, which is, which is a, a valid, uh, reason. Um, how have you seen the supporters culture kind of, evolve over over the time you've been associated uh i've always gotten the sense that um there was a large amount of diversity in the stands uh i think more so now than at the very beginning but um you know going to games and seeing uh you know people of all races uh standing together and singing in English and in Spanish and not really caring that that's what's happening. You know, that was always, always something that was, was really nice to see and, and felt made me feel, um, it made it easier to, uh, to be involved because it felt much more inclusive, um, to anyone, uh, someone who grew up in the U S or someone who recently immigrated and only speaks Spanish. There wasn't any barrier. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it's much more, I think much more, uh, diverse now than even then. Uh, but, um, as MLS has grown and, and more and more markets become involved. Um, but it's always, it's always seen that way, uh, as long as I can recall. And I guess on the flip side, have, have there been times, you know, I, I always, there've been times where, um, despite the fact that over time I've felt very included in a lot of the activities, um, with the supporters sections, uh, the various groups, um, with DC United, there have been times where that has not been the case. And there've been incidents that have, uh, kind of, uh, rubbed me the wrong way or just outright made me angry. Have there, have there been times I know there's, there's probably a few situations where you kind of felt that exclusion or, or you felt just kind of, uh, where your voice wasn't heard. Um, yeah, I think, I think the worst moments have been in like, a. CONCACAF Champions League games and um, in the short-lived Superliga, uh, principally against Mexican teams. Uh, I found a lot of people kind of wrapped up in the Mexico element, not realizing maybe that there are Colombians and, and Argentines that are playing against United. And I've heard some 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 bad things about about Mexican people. Um, and you know, the idea that the, because this team is from Toluca, they're all from Mexico like that. I've never really understood, but that's kind of what has, has presented itself. Not a lot, but, um, I think, I, I think some of that is, is how, uh, I've never really felt that you had to be a, an expert in, in soccer and really knowledgeable to follow DC United. You could really, really love like the, the 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 atmosphere inside and outside the stadium. You come from the tailgate, you have a good time, watch the game. Uh, you don't really need to know the game to support the team, and that sort of sort of shows itself. I think when you have someone who you know says something about 
about Mexican people or Mexican players not realizing that because this team isn't from Mexico doesn't necessarily mean that all its players are Mexican. Um, but I've heard I've heard some bad things. I have I have friends who are Mexican and uh, or are of other Latin American descent who have felt kind of unsettled in environments like that. Um, and I mean, especially when it's like a really big team, I think uh, like we, we played um, like we played Chivas or we played like America, like the, the number of fans in the stands for the other team kind of makes people much more defensive, a little bit more likely to lash out, which is not an excuse, but I think that's the reasoning. Um, that's why we hear the things that we do. Mm-hmm. And how do you think, I think one of the important things is when, when something happens in the section, I mean, you know, unfortunately these things happen. It's not, it's, it's, it's something that you try to eliminate, but it happens. How do you think the reaction has been? How do you think the, the, from either from higher ups or from, you know, just your, your fellow supporters when something like that happens? Uh, I mean, there, there has to be a lot of, of self-policing and I say has to be because that's not always happening. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes, uh, it takes a lot to, 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 to stand up to somebody who is being, um, I mean, discriminatory really fits, but it's, it's like, it's like insulting, you know, right. um, to a player on the field just because of like where they're from. And, uh, I mean, I, I, have had to do a lot of policing of other things um, as like, as like a song leader in the bar, you know, I'm like higher up and I could see a lot more of what happens, but when it comes to policing what people say, it's a little bit more difficult. Um, I mean, there have been instances where, you know, people have said, Oh, you know, Hey, that's not cool. Um, and I'm not sure how much of a difference it makes maybe like in the moment, but it's not like having a conversation with somebody and educating them on why that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it hasn't been as, as as effective as I would like, but I mean, there there have been times when you know you say something to somebody, they're like, okay, they dial it down, maybe realize, hey, like, heat in the moment or whatever, I said something I shouldn't have, and then and then you don't hear it anymore. But I'm not sure how much that changes things in the long run. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I there's been a couple times, and and I'll go back to probably the uh, one that really irritated me the most, but also kind of has a, a silver lining in it. Um, there was the first game that Charlie Davies played for DC United. I remember distinctly a kid in the Screaming Eagle section shouting out the N-word at Charlie Davies because he went down in a, in a diving manner. Um, this is the first game, first game he'd ever played for us. He scored two goals that game, his first game back from all the issues that he had had. Um, with the accident and, and the problems he had in the, at social. Um, and I remember hearing this and my instinct was to, you know, to be blunt, to dive five rows in front of me and rip this dude's head off. Um, but I appreciated the fact that I didn't have to do that. I mean, and, and this sounds kind of weird, but the, the fact that there were people that were willing to, to step in between me and this kid and, Tell him one that was not cool, two that is not what we do, and three you are no longer welcome in this section. Um, to have security identify that and kind of you know dissolve you know diffuse the situation before it got too ugly. Um, it was a learning situation for everybody, but at the same time, I kind of felt that I felt that inclusion. I felt that people had my back and had understood my perspective in that situation. Um, do you feel like when you the couple of times that you've encountered something like that, that you've gotten that same feeling, that same feeling that, Hey, at least these people understand where I'm coming from with this. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fine line to, to walk, uh, between, um, like standing up for yourself, for those around you. And then, uh, are you, are you doing too much? Is this person so entrenched in what they think, um, that they're not going to have anything, any of what you have to say. And then you have like an altercation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of, you have to be, you have to be firm, but you have to kind of walk on eggs just a little bit. Um, because as much as I would like to diffuse the situation and maybe show somebody that what they're doing is not, is not cool. I'm also not trying to like have a fight in 135. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Uh, so, 
Um, I mean, I, I feel like when someone has said has said something to somebody to reflect that what they've done is not welcome, they've for the most part been understanding, and they have, and you know, some, or someone will nearby will, will will back them up and be like, just like a simple, like yeah, he's right, goes a long way because now you have two people who are who are telling you, hey, like don't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't I haven't haven't seen instances of 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 people like fighting back against it, you know, resisting. Um, I think in in a way, the the fact that you have so many people around um, helps diffuse the situation to a degree. And it, you're, you're talking about the eggshell part. It is difficult because this isn't like a football game where some dude in one forty seven isn't coming back to the next game. Like we see these people every week. We we drink with them. We eat with them. We party with them. We Yep. Are on road trips together, um, and and it's one and and probably essentially in the new stadium is going to be the same way. We're all going to be together, one section. Um, and I, I think you know, from my perspective, I think there is a give and take where you kind of have to be like, yeah, I know this guy comes to every game, but that doesn't give him an excuse or or her excuse to say what they said um, and and think that it's okay. But at the same time, you're right; you kind of have to, you know see them on a regular basis and you have to kind of balance that. And I like that there's people, um, at least in our, our various groups and our various circles that recognize that and are willing to be that person or be the quote unquote bad guy to step in a diffuse situation before, um, it gets to a, a certain point in their return. Yeah. I think, uh, in, uh, in a way the, the, the diversity of, of, of our groups, Kind of plays into it because if we're using a a Concacaf Champions League game against a against a Mexican team as an example, mm-hmm. if you say something defamatory, the odds are someone who is next to you, behind you, in front of you is is either Mexican affected or herself yeah. or has like fam- parents or their their one, their father is is from Mexico and he's going to have something mm-hmm. to say anyway. It, it it's not if you when you think about it, it's not like the wisest thing to do to 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 insult like a group of people, but you don't often think before you speak. Um, I think there are a lot of factors that play into uh, there not being a real incident, but it's still something to, to, to worry about. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I'll say for the most part that it's, you know, that does not happen. Um, I've, I've actually seen it a lot more on road trips um, directed at our fans um, than I have seen at, at any point in RFK. But uh that's not to say that, you know, it hasn't happened before. And, and unfortunately we may have to deal with it again. Um, but I, I want to kind of quote unquote end, end this part of the conversation by saying, or by asking you how, what steps need to be taken to kind of keep that going, keep the, the, the inclusiveness going, not just with, with race, but also with, uh, you know, People of, sex, of different sexual orientation, uh, religions, um, you know, things that are, you know, sexism, um, anything that's a big topic right now um, has kind of been thrown into this conversation. So, you know, are there steps that need to be taken to kind of keep that going and, and or is or are we not there yet or are we there yet? Um, I don't think I don't think I don't think we're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're, we're inching along and. To get there, the, I mean, it, we, we kind of have to just keep doing what we've been doing. You, you have uh, people who become friends. There are people in, in the Eagles and in the Mbarra that I have known for years. I have no idea what their names are, but it doesn't matter because we come and we hang out. We, we, we have a few drinks. We share food um, and we go home. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily know. Uh, about that person's background, like their experiences, but you know, we're here for like the same reason and we have a good time together and that's all that matters. And I think the more people that come out and they realize, um, Hey, like this is one big melting pot and it's all about like love of the team and of each other, then all that other stuff, uh, becomes less and less important when it comes to how we interact with each other. 
Um, and so if we, we just continue, you know, bringing more people out and um, exposing them to uh, how our groups of fans are uh, on a week to week basis and how we interact with each other like that, it will the num as a number grows, then the less important like our individual differences are. I agree with that. And I think that is a good way to, to leave it. So uh, Rick DeBlazian, uh contributor to Black Red United, uh, longtime DC United fan supporter and all around good guy. Uh, Rick, thanks for uh, being on with us. Hey, thanks for having me. And we'll take a break right now. This is uh, Filibuster, the Black and Red United podcast. Sponsorship for Filibuster comes from the Ehrlich Law Office, whose attorneys provide discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions for residents of Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. I've known the four lawyers at the Ehrlich Law Office literally for years, in one case over a decade, and they are some of the brightest, hardest working people I know. And I know them pretty well. They're longtime sponsors of the podcast, of course. Even before that, they were all friends of mine. And in between, I've been a client of theirs. The Ehrlich Law Office represents people who have had their rights violated, whether by an employer or by the government. They've helped people in workplace discrimination and wage theft cases, as well as non-compete and non-solicitation litigation. They do work on civil rights issues and government takings cases. They've represented folks in litigation involving disability benefits, and they've worked on educational cases for students and teachers alike. The The Ehrlich Law Office believes that your rights matter. You deserve to be free from harassment, and you deserve to work. If you think you could use legal representation in D.C. or Virginia, visit www.ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster for a free consultation. Welcome back. This is uh, the filibuster, uh, the Black and Red United podcast. Uh, We are here uh, continuing our conversation on diversity in American soccer culture, uh, we had a great conversation with uh, Rick DeBlazian uh, earlier, and now we want to branch that out and kind of bring in uh, two people who can talk about it on a more national and probably international uh, level and can do it way better than I ever can and more eloquently. So uh, with that, uh, I'd like to welcome Josie Becker uh, of MLSsoccer.com and Stephanie Yang, the co-managing editor of Stars and Stripes FC and a contributor to the Bent Musket uh, welcome to the Filibus podcast. Hi. Hello. Uh, so first, I want let me start with you, Josie. Can give me a sense of your involvement with soccer, how you got into it, and kind of how you've uh, been a part of the the soccer scene um, uh, as a child and an adult. Um, okay. Well, I was born a, po- a poor black girl in Southern California. And as a poor black girl in Southern California, uh, we played a lot of soccer. Just It was just what we did growing up. Uh, you know, the, the torn up uh, 99 cents or soccer ball that we kicked on uh, the asphalt for way too long. And so I always, you know, I had a love of soccer. Um, I wasn't really like a soccer like fan or spectator, uh, I'd say, until uh, the 2000. 10 World Cup, like 2009 leading up to the World Cup, and then 2010, I started paying attention to Landon Donovan and the national team and what the Galaxy were doing, and like quickly into that, I got into working media gigs, and now I am the gracious, wonderful person before you today. So, yeah, that's pretty much my background. All right, and Stephanie, uh, I'll pose the same question to you. Uh... I grew up fairly middle-class suburbs, Louisiana, and my parents are immigrants, and one of the ways you fit in as an immigrant is you have your kid do what all the other American kids are doing, and what all the American kids did in the suburbs of Louisiana was play soccer. So I played soccer at the youth level. Um, It was really hard to follow women's soccer back in the day before internet was, you know, everywhere because it wasn't on TV. Like, I think Wusa was on PAX, and who the hell had PAX? Um, and then, you know, WPS also didn't really get a TV. So I started following soccer in, like, 2008 when I came up to Boston for college, and they had a local pro club team, the Boston Breakers, and I was able to go see the games live. 
and then, you know, kind of tacked on the national team after that. So I guess let's start this conversation by me asking you this. Um, when it comes to what you've observed through, uh, the, through the years that you guys have been soccer fans, what has, what has been a constant, what has changed, um, as far as the type of people that you see at these events, you know, there's people out there who would argue or would say, um, having been to maybe one or two games that, uh, they have a, a perception of what the typical American soccer fan is. Obviously we kind of all break that mold. Um, but what do you see? Um, I'll start with you, Stephanie. I have seen a little bit of change. Um, actually, there's been kind of a regression because women's soccer went through a crunch. In, they launched a league back when the housing bubble broke. So things were weird from the beginning in 2008. And then that league folded. And there's a lot less money in pro women's soccer right now. And there's been more of a push in the beginning to get those kids on board because youth money is easy. It's easy to grab, especially with teams that have an academy structure. You know, if you've got 2,000 kids in your system, it's easy to grab, you know, a couple hundred of them every weekend to come to your game. So there's been a little bit of a regression, but once again, the league's starting to push out. I see a lot more adults um, on the women's game, obviously, maybe not obviously, but it, a lot of the fans are very female heavy and they're also very LGBT heavy as far as I've seen. Um, I think a lot of LGBT female fans, and I wrote about this for Unusual Efforts, they were first on the ground when it came to women's soccer. You know, a lot of women's sports, LGBT fans find them first um, because for whatever reason, they don't find themselves welcome in spaces where they're trying to watch sports, uh, men's sports. So for women's sports, it's like a, a safer place. It's a place where nobody really questions them as sports fans. It, branching off that a second, this is something that uh, I've noticed um, being a U.S. soccer fan. Um, we obviously, with the American Outlaws, we have uh, support for the U.S. men and for the U.S. women. Um, and now the women are, the, are in the Olympics. Um, last year, they were in the Women's World Cup. Um, but also the flip side for the men, we've had Copa America and Gold Cup the last couple of seasons, couple of years as well. And I noticed that there's a very different crowd um, in the stands and at watch parties or wherever you go to watch these games um, with the men's side versus the women's side. That's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a crowd that uh, there's very little overlap. Do you see that as a, a good thing? Do you see that as a, as something that you would hope uh, kind of a, a gap that would kind of eventually bridge? I think it's a gap that's going to have to bridge because NWSL is starting to slowly merge a little bit with MLS and there's a lot of crossover. So now in Portland, Houston, and Orlando, there's a decent amount of crossover between fan bases, not a huge amount so far, but it, it's starting to happen. And I think a lot of um, women's team fans are, I don't know, as a, as a women's national team fan, sometimes you feel you're in a very niche kind of fandom and when you're, and that makes you feel very clannish and it makes you resistant to being, <laughs> asked to include outsiders or to look at some like the men's team i think it kind of contributes a little bit of an antagonism like oh the men's team gets it's like your big brother they get everything and i'm over here with the hand-me-downs and the leftovers but i think it's going to have to ch and it will change as the women's team starts to force issues with u.s soccer about equality and parity and stuff like that it's not going to meld completely it's not ever going to be a 50 50 balance but i think just in general as soccer becomes more popular you you will see a melding of the crowds uh josie you know you said you grew up in in california you know that seems lends itself to being uh, a place where most people think is a very diverse uh group of people attending sporting events um what was your sense you know as you uh, got into soccer. Was that the case? Was it, is it still diverse and, and what kind of, you know, issues do you see out there? Yeah. So thinking about the different types of crowds that I've seen at the StubHub Center, um, yeah, I so, think, you know, galaxy crowds are, I mean, it's a reflection of Los Angeles, you know, LA doesn't have a majority culture. Like LA is just as Mexican as it is white, just as Hispanic, you know, there's a lot of different cultures happening. And I'd say when I look at supporters groups and when I look at the stands themselves, like it's it's heavily Hispanic. Um, it's, you know, 
a lot of families. Um, so you get you know a lot of women as well as men. Like the crowds always kind of feel like it's got a good mix to it. Um, when I have gone to men's national team games, that balance is a little shifted. You know, it tends to slide a little more male, a little less family. Um, and when I've gone to women's national team matches, it slides in the other direction, like exactly what Stephanie was saying, that just, it's a very female-heavy crowd. Like, I've, it's, it's you know, you can hear it in the, in the cheering. Like, it's just, they're completely different crowds that goes to the men's games and the women's games in the same stadium, which is, you know, odd, considering that we've had years and years of one nation, one team, and... <laughs> uh, Yes, <laughs> laughable as that may be. Um, and just that you know, the women's soccer team has this long history of being good and wearing the same uniform. And you would think that, you know, the, yeah, the, the theory is that, you know, with, with uh, having um, women's teams that are co-branded with MLS teams or playing in the same stadiums, that there would start to be that overlap. But that we don't have that overlap with the national teams now after all these decades like i don't know if necessarily the, necessarily that will happen um but yeah i don't know he's getting back to the original thing just crowds are very diverse at the sub pub center but there's still some gaps that you can see when you look at the different teams that play there and does that lend to its inclusiveness or does is there times where you're like eh, it's a u.s men's national team game i that's kind of not my scene is there are there times where or or even when team different teams come to play there, um, that you kind of feel that it feel more included, included, or even if you feel more excluded. Well, I mean, it's for me the only time I ever felt excluded was back when Chivas was still playing there, and like Chivas went very heavily and you know using Spanish announcements and um, you know cultivating. Um, you know, fan events that were in Spanish and featured Spanish bands and stuff like that. So it was definitely like that was when I was kind of like, oh, there's culture that like I you know can participate in, but don't feel like that's their marketing at me. Which was a you know, it's a first when you're kind of like you know used to feeling like included everywhere, um, but at the same time, like it was you can recognize it. Like it was a good thing that that space existed. And like Subhub does host like Mexican teams that come through all the time. And so you get to see these different crowds. Um, and yeah, sometimes this is not for you and you just kind of have to step back and go like, Oh, okay. That's, that's, this is a different crowd. It's a different game. Time out for a minute. Adam, I had to switch headphones. Am I still sounding? Okay. Okay. Um, sorry about that. My phone's, conked out the last second <laughs> which happens technological difficulties on the filibuster podcast um okay so i think the best way to kind of shift this conversation is to um dive a little bit into um what a lot of people have been talking about the last couple weeks it was kind of more news a couple weeks ago um the article in the new york times by uh, jay caspian kang that kind of dealt with or gave the opinion that um, the U.S. soccer culture was very homogenous um, and that there was it was more skewed towards the um, European side or trying to imitate the Euro style of uh, soccer support. Stephanie, do you see that as an issue? Do you see that as something that is true? Um, or do you think that's something that... Um, where we lend ourselves to uh, being a little bit different and, and not everybody being um, kind of tied into that Euro style of support. I mean, on a surface level, maybe I, I go to Rev's games when I can. Um, and I do notice it's an extremely white crowd when I go. I, I don't super see a lot of people like me there, but on the other hand, I've also never felt unwelcome or unsafe in that atmosphere. So it it's like a situation where the audience does skew heavily white, as I perceive it. Um, although there's there seems to be a pretty good gender balance going on there that I've seen um, with the, the Rebellion and the Midnight Riders anyway. And 
and it, it turned out that way, but at the same time, it didn't seem like it was, you know, by design or malicious. It just happened to be all these white folk came together to support the, the revolution. And I've always felt very welcome. On the other hand, I've never been to a men's national team games and I've never been in like an AO section. And I know some of my, some of my friends have felt, um, isolated or, or felt a little bit left out sitting in, in an AO section or, you know, at an MNT game in general. So it, it does happen. Um, I think coming from women's soccer, we, we see that, uh, trying to emulate European soccer, you know, as the article kind of proposed was going on in the United States, it's not necessarily the best model. We have a chance to build something on our own here that, that can take the best elements of established cultures, but doesn't have to follow them closely in order to be successful. And it's also kind of wary of, of soccer cultures in Europe when you see reports of, you know, neo-Nazis and fascists and, um, ultras and it, it's an excuse for ultra nationalism, that sort of thing. So, yeah, on the women's soccer side, on a gender and a racial level, um, I, I think it actually hasn't been too much of a concern. And then from what I see, you know, at least in, in New England with the Revs, I think there would be a rejection of that assumption. Like, yeah, we see cool stuff there that we want to emulate, but we're also creating our own thing. And we're not about to ostracize anybody who doesn't agree that this is the best way to do it. Yeah. And I, I want to say that the, uh, um, whether it's a, you know, a, a U.S. section, whether it's a, you know, for me, DC United, that the, the flair um, that we see isn't necessarily just Euro-based. Um, you know, we have a lot of chance that you see across MLS where um, they are very heavily South American influenced or, or otherwise Latin American influenced. Um, a lot of songs in Spanish, um, a lot of songs in, you know, French when you're playing Canada. But uh, um, I want to say that the, the fact that the statement that it's strictly Euro based is not there. And, and even, you know, probably with the Reds, I, you know, I've, I've heard them do chants that are, um, you know, have Spanish in them or, or, or other, um, uh, other styles of, of support, um, and are not necessarily focused on, um, imitating something that other people see on the news, um, as a bad thing. Um, Josie, what do you, I mean, let me get your thoughts on, on that as well. I just, I mean, me personally, I feel like if you watch any, really any MLS game and think that the sounds you hear are like English influenced in nature, like, like England, English fluent, like that, I don't, I assume that you haven't watched games in Argentina. I assume that you haven't watched Porto. I assume that you haven't watched anything in Mexico because that's what it resembles way more than anything in England. English soccer fans, they sing. We don't sing, we chant. Um, and they don't sing the whole time. Like there, there's pauses, they react. There's no drumming. The drumming is very South American influence. Like, so I don't understand that direct comparison like it's very clear that our culture is imported like it's it's drawing on a lot of influences um but it's a diverse base of influences and it's a diverse base that supports like when you're talking about chants in spanish and things like that that like you know it it's it's not just like taking their tone and then just making it for like a English speaking American audience. Like it's literally like trying to import it, trying to include it and trying to make it a part of American soccer culture. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that you say that it's, it's a growing thing because if you think about it, our modern uh, soccer scene is probably, you know, no more than, I mean, if you want to say 1990, um, but most people will say 1994 is kind of the start of that modern era of support and people kind of saying, oh, this is something that can be built into our own identity. Um, and, you know, 20 years later, we're still searching for that identity, but I think that comes with the territory. You know, these English leagues weren't being, weren't, didn't have the perfect, the perfect model 20 years into their existence. Um, and, and I don't think we should either, but I think it's something that's constantly evolving. Um, one way I want to switch or, or kind of shift towards how do we build on this um, is how do we um, 
how do we limit the exclusiveness of some of these chants, some of these atmospheres, um, even some of you know some groups that um, kind of uh, would be perceived as intimidating uh, to anybody? Um, how do we move that needle forward? What what does it take? And I know that's not an easy answer, um, but I I'll still pose it to you anyway. I'll start with you, Josie. Um, so, you know, I, I can't speak from personal experience, but I can share other stories that I've, uh, that I've encountered. Um, you know, the, the issues that I have seen, especially like with American outlaws, um, just the amount, just abuse that can kind of happen in those kinds of environments. Um, the, the reports of groping and just inappropriate comments toward women, um, aren't things that are going to make women want to hang out at those events. Um, and I think that's something that stems from, um, when you have like binge drinking pre-party type culture, like that goes back to the frat scene in the U S like that goes back to just bro culture in general. Um, you know, Bud Light be up for anything. Like, it's that kind of culture that doesn't include women in that discussion and makes women feel extremely uncomfortable. Um, so I think if we're talking about ways in which to Im- improve the inclusiveness of groups like that, um, like, just there's a greater cultural shift that's at the core of what's rotten about that um, that we need to have conversations about. And Stephanie, same question to you. I, I and I, I, I'll further your question by saying, how do we, you know, how do we bridge that gap between, um, how do we start to bridge that gap between the women uh, support and support for the men as well, and even vice versa, um, because I see, at least from my perspective now, I see a lot of people wanting to be involved in both um, and don't really feel like they fit into one or the other and. Um, obviously if somebody wants to support both, they should be, uh, it should be an atmosphere that on both sides, both the men's games and for women's games that would, um, allow them to feel like they are part of that just as equally as they would be if they went to the other, um, a sporting event. So I'll, I'll pose that question to you. Um, I'll build a little bit on what Josie talked about with, you know, women seeing bro culture and feeling unwelcome or unsafe, which is, um, you've got to involve women in your leadership and they have to be visible, visible women. They have to be willing to be outspoken or to, you know, to reach out and say, I'm here, I'm available to listen to your complaints or your concerns whenever. Um, I know with, uh, in, with the revolution, I don't know if you guys know Fran Harrington, mm-hmm. but, um, Fran has always, you know, immediately responded to any concerns that I've seen. And so whenever he speaks out, and immediately says, no, this is not okay. All of our members need to feel safe. It in turn makes me feel like, oh, okay, I can, as as a woman or someone who's LGBT or a person of color, I can immediately speak up about an issue and leadership is willing to listen and not just say, don't worry about it, it's soccer. Um, I know Fran's not a woman, but that's an example of how vocal leadership can make people feel. It starts, you know, top down. So on the ground level, I feel like there can be self-policing among the group where it's your basic, you know, if somebody is trying to use, for example, like the Pudo chant or something, you can immediately go, dude, that's not what we're about. Um, and then from the top down, you can also have visible leaders, especially women, people of color, LGBT leaders, who are like, look, we're part of this group too, and we want you to know that we value you and that you can feel safe here. And if anyone ever makes you feel unsafe, that that's unacceptable. And that's a, that's a good question. I want to kind of, uh, expand on that a little bit. And, you know, you, you mentioned the chant as I'll call it. Um, um, you see it all the time. Uh, you hear it all the time. I'm actually hearing it in these Olympics. Um, but it's, it's one thing for me to denounce another fan base's traditions or, or what they do on a regular basis. It's another to do it when you are, it is your group one and two, it is with people that you know and that you hang out with and that you see on a weekly basis like you would uh, in a lot of these MLS supporters groups. Um, what do you think, how do you, it, leadership is one thing and, and, and having great leadership um, is essential, but that may not stop uh, this from happening. It may not stop the reaction in the heat of the moment. 
how do we approach that? Because it's not always a, an easy task for somebody to stand up to not just a peer, but one of their friends and tell them that what they're doing isn't cool. Yeah, it it is really hard because that's someone you know, but at the same time, it's most important because if someone outside your group criticizes you, it's easy to go, they're an outsider, they don't know, like, why should we have to listen? They're jealous or they're haters or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's most important for this stuff to come from your peers. And um, I know it's really difficult. I mean, I haven't always been the bravest when trying to call stuff out with problematic friends, which is, you know, a reason why there has to be strong leadership that you know will back you if you feel like you have to go to the mat, as it were. It doesn't even have to be, you know, you getting into some kind of um, dramatic debate with your friend over in the supporters group section. It can be as simple as just saying, hey, can you, you know, stop that for a second and we'll talk about it after the game. And, you know, I, I'm i not super sure about this, but there may also need to be like things from the club or the league, like um, I'm not super sure about discipline, what disciplinary action they should take, you know, if that's in the uh, way of points or, um, you know, closed door games or, or stuff like that. But yeah, other than saying, I know, I know it's, it's a crappy thing to say, you just got to be brave and do it, man. But sometimes you just got to be brave and do it. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree. It's, it's a, it's always a difficult task, and but it, it is sometimes what has to happen. Um, and, you know, as, as I would say, for a lot of people, if it's your real friend, then they would understand why you had to do what you did. And um, sometimes that can be taken good or bad, but um, uh, it's something that needs to be done at times, especially when it's somebody that you know you can influence with your with your words and with your, uh, leaders, your immediate leadership. Um, Josie, I'll end this with you. Um, what, what's next? How do we move this conversation forward? Because this is the first of many conversations that we, uh, we collectively as the soccer culture need to have. What's the, what's the next step? There's several ways we can do this, but what do you think is the next step? Well, when we were talking just now about uh, the chant and like steps on how to eradicate things like that, you know, I just I started thinking about you know when the league got it under like a bee in its bonnet about the YSA chant, like they took immediate action, and I would say for the most part it's kind of gone, like it's still out there, but it's not nearly as noticeable as it was in years past. Um, you know, I know the, the Mexican national team has done a bit of a PR campaign against uh, the chant. Um, and hopefully that'll start a conversation. But I think ultimately, I mean, for YSA, it, it was punishments towards supporters groups that ultimately did the job. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of top-down um, discipline has shown an ability to work, you know, especially when, um, you know, supporters groups are kind of presented with their benefits as privileges, you know, like, and I also understand that there's a resistance to that because supporters groups are a ground up thing. And this idea that the league can kind of take away things from a ground up movement, uh, like they took the supporters show in the first place. But, um, you know, this idea that the league is ultimately in control of the supporters groups rubs some people the wrong way. But I think ultimately is the only way to create the inclusive environment, um, that everyone wants, you know. Uh, we we were all in high school. We know that when groups create themselves, uh, they're clicky and mean and stupid. Um, and sometimes an authority has to kind of step in and say, that's not okay. Um, you can't treat people like this. And Stephanie, uh, that was a great answer, but I, I also want to give you, the, uh, give you a chance to uh, comment on that as well. I would agree that sometimes that strong top-down action is really the only thing that'll get people to stop and listen. It'll kind of imprint on them that, oh, what we're doing has consequences for me. I know it's it's kind of sucky to be like, have to appeal to people's selfishness, like their own self-preservation, but sometimes you have to go, hey, the band hammer is going to come down if you don't behave, and that's 
you know, if that's what it takes for everybody to feel safe at a game, then, you know, go for it. That sounds good to me, and I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, wait, Josie, did you have something? It, it we, we could leave it there. That was a good place to end it. Okay. Um, you know, I I just it just flew, flew through my mind. You know, like when when you bring up the band hammer, like you know, if I'm sorry if the games aren't as fun. Like if the games are like five percent less fun for you, I apologize. Like that sucks. It sucks to lose stuff. But you know what? If it makes it fifteen percent more fun for the person who was feeling excluded and left out then suck it up like we're all in this together and we just got to find the ways that make everyone feel safe and comfortable there we go and you heard it here first guys but uh this is a conversation we could obviously have for years and and but i feel like we've made some progress tonight and the hardest step is always the first step and i think uh you josie and you stephanie for being a, a very important part of that first step um, thank you guys for joining us on the uh, filibuster. Thanks for having me. And thank that you. will do it this week um, for the filibuster podcast. You can catch us uh, at blackredunited.com. Uh, thank you to Rick, the Blasian. Thank you to Josie Becker, Stephanie Yang, and a special thanks to Adam and Ben and Jason for kind of giving us the, uh, the give me the wheel this week and letting me uh, run with this thing. Um, it's very appreciated. Um, and I think it's a great uh, forum for us to kind of, uh, share our views on, on a topic that's uh, very difficult for a lot of people to uh, discuss, but it's one that's very important to have. Uh, so with that, uh, I'll say good night and thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Buster receives sponsorship from the Ehrlich Law Office, discrimination, wage, and litigation solutions serving Northern Virginia and the District of Columbia. They handle employment issues including wrongful termination, wage disputes, discrimination, equal employment opportunity matters, and more. They also handle civil rights litigation, defamation, and general litigation. For a free consultation, visit ehrlichlawoffice.com slash filibuster.